On Being is brought to you by the John Templeton Foundation. The Templeton Foundation harnesses the power of the sciences to explore the deepest and most perplexing questions facing humankind. Learn about cutting-edge research on the science of generosity, gratitude, and purpose at templeton.org forward slash discoveries. I've had hundreds of big conversations on this show, and my conversation partners share wisdom I carry with me wherever I go. Across the years, people have asked for shorter-form distillations, something you can listen to while you make your cup of coffee or tea, and something shareable. The Becoming Wise podcast is this offering, and we're now launching its second season. So this hour, a taste— Nine wise and graceful lives, moments of discovery, and tools for the art of living. It's very hard to see love as a force, as a power, rather than as a weakness, but that is its, its reality. Human beings, I mean, they can leave you speechless by the horrible things they do, but they also leave you speechless with the incredible things. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. We begin with Eckhart Tolle. I interviewed him in the early years of the show. He began to gain attention as a spiritual teacher with his 1997 book, The Power of Now. Millions of people around the world have found pragmatic tools in his vision that fundamentally complicates the notion, I think, therefore I am. You know, you tell this story in A New Earth um, about... You experienced a woman talking to herself on the train, right? The tube train. Yes. Tell yes. that story, kind of caught in her thoughts, and then you you came to understand that you had some of the same problems. Yes. So she would. I would sometimes see her on the train, and she would continuously talk to herself or to an imaginary person in a very angry voice, or continuously complaining and. And then he did this to me, and then he sat in ice, and then how dare he tell me this? And I watched in amazement, thought, how can anybody be so insane and still apparently have a job? Because she would catch the subway <laughs> every morning. Right. <laughs> and one day I was washing my hands in the bathroom, and I thought, my God, her voice, she never stops talking. And I suddenly realized, well, I do that too, except that I don't do it out aloud. Hmm. And then I thought, I hope I don't end up like her. And somebody next to me looked at me and I suddenly realized in shock that I had actually said these words aloud, just like her. I said, I hope I don't end up like her. (laughs) So I realized my mind was as incessantly active as hers. Our only difference was that my thought was mostly based on feeling sorry for myself, it was kind of depressed kind of thinking. Her patterns were fueled by anger. It took years before I finally was able to really step out of the stream of thinking and realize there is a place inside me that is far more powerful than the continuous mental noise with which for many, many years, I had been completely identified, just like the, that woman. Mm. So, so what happened to you when you were 29 to finally really jolt you out of that? Well, I was in the depths of depression, and I lived in anxiety about 
my life and my problems and my future. And one night I woke up again feeling this sense of dread and I, a phrase came into my head which said, I can't live with myself any longer, I can't live with myself any longer. And suddenly I was able to stand back and look at that phrase and I thought, oh, that is strange. Who am I and who is the self that I cannot live with? Because there must be two of me here. If uh, that phrase is correct, yes. Interesting. <laughs> there are two of me. Right. I was The I was there and the me that I couldn't live with actually was the continuous mental noise, the stream of thinking that considered life and that considered myself as a problem. And is it, I wonder if it's also some aspect of that is that when you are fully alive and fully present, if, even if in a very powerful way, right? I mean, even if that your presence is powerful, there's something about knowing your place in the scheme of things. I mean, being aware of how complex and large um, everything around you is. Yes, and the vastness of it all and the compulsion to continuously interpret whatever you're experiencing at any given moment that is no longer there and there's great freedom in not compulsively interpreting other people, situations and so on, not imposing all these judgments, that's another word for it, imposing thinking continuously on the world which is so alive and so fresh and new at every moment and so Yes, the mind is beautiful. The ability to think is a great thing. And it does not mean you fall below thinking when you when you are open to the present moment. Or that you turn your mind of, off, right? It doesn't. Yes. Right. What we are talking about here is a state of alert attention to what is, where compulsive thinking no longer operates. This means you rise above thinking to a large extent in your life, where you can face life without the interference of the mind, still being able to use the mind when it's needed, but not being used by it. My favorite book of Eckhart Tolle is The Power of Now. He's also the author of the wildly best-selling A New Earth. Civil rights marches of the 1960s started in churches and ended in churches. The movement had a preacher as leader. The spirituals and hymns of that movement became hymns of the nation. The civil rights elder Ruby Sales opens up what it was to be a teenage participant in that work of social shift, including the impatience she had with religion, and how she circled back through her experiences of the movement and of life to a sense of the deep reason for inner life and religious groundings. You know, one thing you've said, and you've likened yourself to the Black Lives Matter, a lot of the, the kids who are involved in that today, that you were not especially religious, right? That you you had this grounding in church, but you said that you used to complain. A lot of you used to complain when there had to be these obligatory prayers before everything started. 
It um, was downright embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, you couldn't go to a mass meeting without these people always praying. And, <laughs> and it was like, my God, do we have to do this? <laughs> um, but I, you know, when I first went on my first demonstration, I was really kind of naive, unsophisticated, a peasant um, who had been bred on black folk religion and who really believed, I was a part of the Pepsi generation, who really believed that right was right and it would win out. So I went on my first de demonstration, and I'm embarrassed to say this, but we were surrounded by horses and state troopers who wouldn't let us go to the bathroom. And I kept looking up at the sky, waiting for the Exodus story to happen immediately. <laughs> <laughs> and it didn't happen. Well, so, so, I expected yeah. God to appear, some chariot to open up in the sky, because I couldn't imagine that we were so right and God would be so wrong in my 17-year-old mind. I couldn't imagine that. I mean, my 16-year-old mind. And so I lost religion that day. And I slowly became a Marxist. I became a materialist. If it wasn't economics, if it wasn't race, then it didn't exist. And I thought black folks were religious fanatics, you know. <laughs> Well, so, so tell us, how did you eventually circle back to the place, or circle to the place, maybe it's not back, where you went to divinity school, where you started to be a public theologian? And what did that mean? How did well, that... I think the paradox is that even when we think we left home, we never really go anywhere. And so I think that although I thought that I was not religious, the truth of the matter is, I was, and I went to church all the time, and that was the Sweet Honey Concerts. And Bernice Johnson Regan kept us in church, and all of the songs that she sang, and all of the music, and the God talk that she would do from the stage, she became the preacher for a generation of African-American young people. She herself was the daughter of a preacher who thought that we had left the church, but black folk religion was so deeply ingrained in us that we never really left it. So I carried with me the songs, I carried with me the testimonies, I carried with me the, the whole notion of right relations. That, that was a cornerstone mm -hmm. of how I imagined justice. Mm -hmm. Even when you didn't feel religious. Right, yeah. I, I really never left, but a defining moment for me happened when I was getting my locks washed and my locker's daughter came in one morning and she had been hustling all night and she had sores on her body and she was just in a state, drugs. So something said to me, ask her, where does it hurt? And I said, Shelly, where does it hurt? And just that simple question unleashed territory in her that she had never shared with her mother. And she talked about having been incested. She talked about 
all of the things that had happened to her as a child. And she literally shared the source of her pain. And I realized in that moment, listening to her and talking with her, that I needed a larger way to do this work mm. rather than a Marxist materialist analysis of the human condition. Mm. And also, I was riding down the road one day in Washington, D.C., after having been in a demonstration against the war in Iraq. And suddenly, out of nowhere, I started crying. And I realized that God had been with me even when I hadn't been with myself. And those moments made me really begin to seek to go back to really think deeply about black folk religion and to really want to develop in a very intentional way an inner life that had to do with how I lived in the world. hung on to that question, where does it hurt, as a spiritual and practical tool so resonant in this era of tumult and social shift. Ruby Sales is founder and director of the Spirit House Project in Atlanta. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with nine wise and graceful lives, a taste of season two of the Becoming Wise podcast. Rami Nashashibi fills me with hope about how art can make humans visible to each other. He brings a new energy to Islam's core commitment to beauty and humanity and to the power of stories to heal and electrify us across geography and generation, culture and faith. He founded the Inner City Muslim Action Network on Chicago's South Side, where he also lives with his family. Talk to me about how you... Bring the arts into what you do. I mean, like, here's, here's one of the big defining sentences on your website, that, that Iman works for social justice, delivers a range of social services, and cultivates the arts in urban communities. So I want to he- hear a little bit about you know, how spiritually and practically the arts and justice work together for you. Well, you know, for, for me, that tradition, and while now we host artists from the subcontinent who are performing kawali alongside an opera singer, along a spoken word poet, alongside a traditional hip-hop artist, um, a lot of that honestly started with hip-hop. Um, and You're really critical of people who judge, who condemn hip-hop as part of the decay of culture and oh, ruining our young. Yeah. yeah, I mean, because I think hip-hop, I think hip-hop's origins have been extraordinary, and I think hip-hop, and, and that's because there is an aspect of hip-hop culture that was extraordinary in bringing together the most disconnected, the most marginalized and disempowered sectors of urban young people, both in the Bronx and then in other urban centers, and found just extraordinarily 
creative ways of expressing not only um, a search for a commonality, but a, a common cultural experience that was both universal and particular at the same time. Mm. So you found for the first time young Latino, black and white kids in New York coming together around a cultural creation that both allowed them to celebrate their Aztec traditions as well as their shared New York experience. And that model, that formula, you know, became global. And so the way we kind of gravitated towards it was very organic. It became the most powerful and useful way of bringing together young kids in Chicago who were totally disconnected from one another while still living and sharing the same kind of urban experiences. So for example, one of our first projects we did was on one big side of the wall where there was a well-known graph writer and, and graffiti writing is one of the four elements of hip hop um, in Chicago. His name was Zor, a Puerto Rican guy. And, you know, I got a hold of him and uh, I, I, I showed Zor um, traditional Islamic calligraphy. And there's a verse in the Quran that, you know, that some people have heard. It's, we created you into nations and tribes that, so that you may get to know one another, not hate one another. And the, that the most dignified among you is the one with the most consciousness of the divine. And the, you know, we used that verse, and I showed him traditional Islam calligraphy, and it was done in this really ornate, circular style. And he said, let's throw that up on the wall. And uh, I said, yeah, that'd be great. He said, but I'm going to make it contextually relevant to urban graffiti. <laughs> you know, I said, that's fine. You can do whatever you want, Zor, as long as you retain the core elements of this piece. And he said, that's fine. He says, he says, and it's speaking to me. I see this piece. It's speaking to me. And I remember what we did was literally we gathered over 250 kids in the neighborhood and we had this unveiling of it that brought these, you know, uh, hip hop artists together. And it was both something that connected, it was relevant, it celebrated a core aspect of Muslim tradition. So we saw the power, and that was as early as 1995, and since then we've used the art as a way to tell our stories, right. as a way to connect our stories. It, the arts have become the real factor for us in both humanizing each other's stories, connecting our stories, and, you know, I think revealing to one another the possibilities of what a better world can look like. Rami Nashashibi was named a MacArthur Fellow in 2017 and an Opus Prize Laureate in 2018. What is love? The astronomer Natalie Battaglia embodies a planetary sense of what love is and means. She has searched the universe for exoplanets, Earth-like bodies beyond our solar system that could harbor liquid water and life. And she's so warm and joyful as she takes this work into her life as a human on Earth. So, I mean, here's a way you've written about, you know, just some language you, you, you've used. What we observe out there is that nature is creative, prolific, robust. I mean, you also bring words like love. It's not that you're confusing these things with your science or conflating it, them. But it, I sense that this life of discovery that you're involved in 
does bring you back to think about something like love um, differently, that it informs and somehow infuses um, mm-hmm. your thinking about that. So talk to me about that. Yeah. This has been a surprise to me, actually, um, that my perspective on love has been so informed by science. Um, but it has. It's been fundamentally shifted. And then I, I read other scientists who've had the same perspective, and it all kind of makes sense. I mean, Carl Sagan's quote, you know, for small creatures such as we, the vastness is bearable only through love. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and this, this, you know, love, this idea is this moving force. I mean, it, it's just permeates our, our, our history, our, our, our culture. Um, I've equated it to, um, you know, this analogy of dark matter, you right. know, 95% of the mass of the universe being something we can't even see. And yet it, it moves us, it draws us, it creates galaxies. We're like moving on a current of this <sighs> gravitational field created by mostly stuff that we can't see. And, and science has given me that perspective, but, but also in, in very, logistical, tangible, practical ways, you know? I mean, when you study science, you step out of planet Earth. You look back down at this blue sphere and you see a world with no borders. Right. You see a tiny mote of dust suspended in a sunbeam. You see the expanse of the cosmos and you realize how small we are and, and how connected we are and that we are all the same and that what's good for you has to be good for me. Was there a moment or did something happen where you where you first realized you were thinking about love the way you were thinking about dark energy? Oh my goodness. Because I mean, it's um, a really interesting connection. I would say, you know, also thinking it changes the way you think about love. I mean, it is an energy. Yeah. Right? It's not it's just yeah. a feeling inside you. Um, yeah. you're right. Well, certainly I mean, with the, with my own personal experiences, uh, you know, being middle aged and having raised four children. I know and, you have four children. Yeah. I have four children, <laughs> and um, you know, just going through life and all of life's challenges and adversity and losing people that we love and all of those things make us think about love. Um, you know, we need to be loved and to love mm-hmm. to be happy. Um, with science, I. You know, uh, studying science, you realize the connectedness of all things. And, you know, we are we are stardust. And here I am, this bag of stardust. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it took how many billions of years for me to, for the atoms that make up my body to come together and make this being that's able to take a, a conscious look at the universe. I mean, I am the universe and I'm taking a look at myself mm. through these senses that I have. And that is an amazing thing. I mean, for you, that's such a concrete statement. Also, given I, you know, somebody else could say that and it, it might seem a little flaky, but you really know what uh-huh. you're talking about. I mean, yeah. You've, you've you've discovered right. the first rocky planet and things like that. You really know yeah, these I things. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. Well, no, that's a good point. I don't necessarily mean it in kind of a hippie flowers in mm-hmm. my hair kind of way. It's you know, it's easy to say all these fluffy philosophical words that make us all warm and fuzzy. But but there are really practical, you know, connections. There are things that I do see that are real that are that are part of what we're discovering. Natalie Battaglia is a professor of astronomy and astrophysics at the University of California at Santa Cruz. She served as the project scientist for NASA's Kepler mission from 2011 to 2017. 
Here's an image I love of the late Vincent Harding, of what we can all be, live human signposts. Vincent Harding himself was a live human signpost, and he remains a mentor to me and countless others. He was a central figure in the civil rights movement, a speechwriter from Martin Luther King Jr. He spent the rest of his life on a project called Veterans of Hope, bringing the wisdom of the movement to young people in hurting places. There's a story you tell that was about a conversation, encounter you were having in a hard neighborhood in Boston, and Mm-hmm. A young man named Daryl. Yes. Would you tell that story about signposts, his image of signposts? Hmm. What I remember from that story was that a dear young friend of mine, uh, Eugene Rivers, young at that time, oh, right. I guess Gene, Gene is a good still deal Still busy old. in Boston. You're still busy in Boston. <laughs> yeah. I'm, I met this young man uh, in Eugene's apartment and this young man um, came up just to sit next to me because he wanted to talk in a more personal way. It turned out that he was one of the leaders uh, of uh, the drug-running folks uh, at the time. But what he said to me was that he really felt that one of the reasons why he had gone in the way that he had gone, not trying in any way to excuse himself, was the fact that he, like many other young people, were operating in a situation where they felt it was just very, very dark all around them. And what they needed were, as he put it, some some signposts, right. some lights right. that would, in other people's lives, help l- them. Live human signposts, you see. Yes, uh-huh. yes, that would help them to see the possibilities for themselves and will open up uh, possibilities that other people can't see in any other way except seeing it through human beings who care about them. And if we teach young people to run away from the darkness rather than to open up the light in the darkness to be the candles, the signposts, then we are doing great harm to them and the communities uh, that they have come out of. I think this word signpost and this image of signpost is really important. I think it's an important piece of practical vocabulary. Um, what you also tell young people is that they have to find the elders, right? I, yes, I've thought a yes. lot over the years about the the teaching in the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament that I think has resonance across the traditions of developing eyes to see and ears to hear. Think of that as almost a, a, a spiritual discipline that the 21st century makes more necessary. That whole idea of discipline is one that Clearly, we have cast aside, except when we're talking about technological development or military development. Mm-hmm. Um, and it seems to me that we need, again, to recognize that to develop the best humanity, the best spirit, the best community, there needs to be discipline, practices of exploring. How do you do that? How do we work together? 
how do we talk together in ways that will open up our best capacities and our best gifts? My own feeling that I try to share again and again, Krista, is that when it comes to creating a multiracial, multiethnic, multireligious, democratic society, we are still a developing nation. (laughs) We've only been really thinking about this for about half a century. But my own deep, deep conviction is that the knowledge, like all knowledge, is available to us if we seek it. And I think that that determination to find a truly democratic society and to create the truly beloved community, uh, those are things that can be available to us if we're willing to work with each other and work with the universe uh, on developing them. They don't come free and easy. They are tough, tough tasks uh, for us to take on. My country tis of thee Sweet land of liberty Of thee We bow to sing Land of the pilgrim's pride Same land Where my forefathers died Vincent Harding taught at Iliff School of Theology in Denver, Colorado. He authored the magnificent book, Hope and History, Why We Must Share the Story of the Movement, and the essay, Is America Possible? Coming up, Archbishop Desmond Tutu, Sharon Salzberg, Robert Thurman, and Father James Martin. You can subscribe to On Being and to Becoming Wise in all the usual places. iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, wherever you find your favorite shows. Support for On Being with Krista Tippett comes from the Fetzer Institute, helping build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Fetzer envisions a world that embraces love as a guiding principle and animating force for our lives. A powerful love that helps us live in sacred relationship with ourselves, others, and the natural world. Learn more by visiting Fetzer.org. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being. Today, Becoming Wise. Moments that have stayed with me ever after from 15 years of big conversation about the mystery and art of living. Archbishop Desmond Tutu is one of our wisest teachers on the territory of reckoning with wrongs from the past that infuse and haunt the present. In the 1990s, he helped galvanize South Africa's peaceful transition to democracy after decades of white supremacy as the law of that land. 
He chaired the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, or TRC. Its basic premise was that any person was eligible for amnesty if they would fully confess their crimes. Archbishop Tutu knew that saying I'm sorry is one of the hardest things for human beings to do, and he did not expect the human redemption that would surface on this stage. What did you learn about why, as you said, one of the hardest things for human beings to do is to say I'm sorry? I mean, what did you learn about forgiveness three-dimensionally that you didn't know before? Well, one was that I, I was uh, I was amazed first of all at how powerful an instrument it is being able to tell your story. You know, you could see in the number of people who, for so long, had been sort of just anonymous, faceless, uh, non-entities just been given the opportunity, did something to rehabilitate them. Mm. But mm. It, it, more than this, it actually was a healing thing. I, we, were, we had a young man, a black young man, who, who had been blinded by police action in his township, and he came to tell his story. When he finished, one of the panel, TRC panel, asked him, hey, how do you feel? And a broad smile uh, broke over his face and he was still blind but he said you've given me back my eyes and you know you you felt so humbled that uh, people could feel that that was how the healing for him uh, would have taken place but you know one of the things that constantly amazed us was the remarkable magnanimity of people. Hmm. All people, black, white, Africans, and Americans. I mean, human beings can leave you speechless, really. I mean, they can leave you speechless by the horrible things they do, right. but they also leave you speechless with the incredible things. We saw so many times people who ought to have been bristling with bitterness and anger, when they meet the perpetrator, actually being able to embrace. Mm. And you were asking about the difficulty. Yes, it is difficult. And when we started, we looked at the legislation, and the legislation did not require a perpetrator who applied for amnesty to express even remorse. And we, we were very upset and said, but I mean, why not say they've got to say sorry or something? Right. But we discovered, I mean, that actually the legislators were a lot smarter because had they insisted that it was a condition to uh, uh, get amnesty. Each time somebody said, I'm sorry, I'm very sorry, we would have said, ah, he's just putting that on. Right. As it happened, despite the fact that it was not a requirement, when, when people were applying for amnesty, almost always they would turn to the victims or the, the survivors or the family if the person had been killed, 
and they would turn to them and say, please, we know it's very difficult, but please forgive. Uh, and, and as I say, almost always the victims would. Archbishop Desmond Tutu was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize in 1984. He's written numerous books for adults and children, including The Rainbow People of God and, together with his good friend the Dalai Lama, The Book of Joy. I'm Krista Tippett, and this is On Being, today with Nine Wise and Graceful Lives, a taste of Season 2 of the Becoming Wise podcast. What if we thought of love for our enemies as an act of self-compassion? This is how Robert Thurman and Sharon Salzberg challenge us to frame our anger. They are icons of American Buddhism, and they are joyful, longtime friends. Something that I think about a lot is that... Um, I think, you know, say in Christianity, it's all, this is often discussed as there's the, the problem of evil or, you know, great enemies is... And even maybe in our culture, we tend to focus on these dramatic, you know, dramatized enemies, you know, the bully or the catastrophic danger or the murderer. But, you know, something that I'm aware of in real life, day to day, I think so much pain and suffering is caused by, I don't know what I would even call maybe the near outer enemy, right? Not the villain out there, but... um, the people, people close to us, you know, in, in workplaces or in families mm. or in friendships. And I mean, it's like people are vulnerable um, and it's, it's those people who are, have a power, a, a, such a destructive mm-hmm. power to do damage in those circumstances. And mm-hmm. where do these beautiful teachings start to speak there? I think that's, that's so crucial. I, I want to say something about that middle place, learning to stop hating. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, apart from, because the word love is so loaded, and what does it mean? Our, our fear, of course, is that it means something very passive and complacent, and I'm going to let people hurt me, and I'm right, going to let right. them oppress other people, and I'm going to be a doormat. And uh, It's a very uh, nuanced and subtle quality. It's very hard to see love as a force, as a power, rather than as a weakness, but that is its its reality. So that middle place is very compelling, whether it's a colleague at work who's sort of annoying or it's somebody who disappoints us um, just in the neighborhood or our community or it's the villain uh, even, um, to have some recognition that the way we can be consumed by hatred or even just an obsession, you know, that that habit we can have of going over someone's faults again Mm. and again and again. It's the same list, but Mm. we'd like to go over it again, you know, (laughs) a few more times. And uh, the way we give over so much of our energy Mm -hmm. to someone else in this kind of negative or destructive way. And, uh, you know, whether it's a minor annoyance or a very grave injustice, there's a way in which we want to be whole. And we don't want to have lost so much of our life's energy to someone else's actions or problems. And we want that energy to return to us and, and for us to be able to go on in a more creative, generative way. And 
And that's the process. That's that's why people engage in this process. Mm-hmm. And I mean, so what do you mean? What tell me the process? Describe that. Well, I think first being aware of uh, how it actually feels to be frightened, to be so angry, to uh, be so consumed with somebody else, to be able to see those states, to be able to have a little more distance or space from to, those to, states. To just gain some self-awareness about the fact that, that you are going over and over that and letting it consume yeah, you. Yeah, exactly. Way. And mm-hmm. how it feels, because then we want to let go out of the greatest compassion for ourselves, not because we're trying to be a goody-goody or a certain kind of person or match uh, you know, someone else's uh, dictum of how we're supposed to be, but out of the greatest love and compassion for ourselves. You know, there's a word in, uh, in Buddhism called klesha, or kilesa in Pali, klesha in Sanskrit, which comes from a verb root that means to twist, to something to be twisted. And um, it's translated defilement or affliction by some, by some people. I used to translate it affliction. But the best word for it actually is addiction. And so anger and, and uh, obsession, uh, lust, these things are said to be addictions. If you, and that immediately gets the point across. In other words, it's something that people think is helping them because it gives them a momentary relief from something else. But actually, it's leading them into a worse and worse place where they're getting more and more dependent and less and less free. And so... De- dependent, uh, dependent because that the way you're handling it is then all entangled with the partly, other person? Yes, part, right, partly. And partly because you believe when anger comes to you, out, meaning in the form of an impulse that you have internally, mm-hmm. this is intolerable, that person did this, this is like something. You know, it's what sort of the inner thought that comes. And it seems to come in a way that is undeniable. You have to act on it. Mm-hmm. So, in other words, it takes you over. And that's where mindfulness can interfere with that by being aware of how your mind works and realizing that it's just one impulse and it's one voice within you. And there's another questioning voice and an awareness voice that can say, well, actually, would this be a good idea to blow your top down? <laughs> or, you know, it's like, I always like to say it's like, otherwise you're like a TV set that has one channel only and no clicker. If you have the horror show rising up from your solar plexus, then you've got to have a horror show. Whereas you can click mm-hmm. to the nature show, you know, you can watch the, <laughs> the minnows frolicking in the lake, you know, in the summer. So I'm saying, you know, that we are very clickable, we're very switchable in our, our moods and minds. And, um, and then the key is the, the hopeful thing for some people who, who like their anger. Some people do like their anger. Hmm. The hopeful thing is that that energy of heat, kind of like a heat, and actually for, in Buddhist psychology, anger is connected to intelligence, to analytic and critical intelligence. And uh, so that energy of strong, powerful energy of heat, force, can be, can be ridden in a different way and can be used to heal yourself, can be used to develop inner strength and determination. And that is really a, something much to be ambitious for. That is a great, great goal.
Robert Thurman's latest book is Man of Peace, an illustrated biography of the Dalai Lama. Sharon Salzberg is a meditation teacher and co-founder of the Insight Meditation Society in Barre, Massachusetts. Her most recent book is Real Love, The Art of Mindful Connection. Their book together is Love Your Enemies. Father James Martin is a well-known and beloved Jesuit writer and teacher. He's followed the calling of the founder of the Jesuit order, St. Ignatius of Loyola, to find God in all things. He does so in 21st century forms, including a wise and witty presence on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. But everyone, Father Martin says, has callings, a vocation. This is not something merely for monastics and clergy. I did not know the part of your story that, you know, that you didn't, you know, because you are known as a religious figure. Um, I did not realize that you studied business in college and worked in corporate finance for GE into your mid-20s um, and only then were captured, uh, it seems, by Thomas Merton. And somewhere in one of your books, you you pull out this first paragraph of No Man is an Island, you know. Why do we spend our lives striving to be something that we would never want to be if only we knew what we wanted? Why do we waste our time doing things which, if we only stop to think about them, are just the opposite of what we were made for? Yeah, I, that, that's the line that changed my life, really. And I just thought, wh- why? <laughs> why am I doing that? Mm-hmm. And it felt like he was speaking directly to me. And I felt like, you know, business is a real vocation for a lot of people. Uh, and it just wasn't for me. And I was miserable. And I, I didn't know what I was doing. And I didn't know how I could find a way out. And that sentence, which really was like a thunderbolt, uh, just prompted me to just shake things up and ask myself that question. And I always say to young people, you know, um, what would you want to do if you could do anything that uh, you could do? It's a very clarifying question for people. And that's, you know, Jesus asks people that, you know, what do you want? Mm-hmm. You know, kind of understanding your desires. So, yeah, I love that paragraph. I go back to it a lot. I think something that really runs through all your writing is that, is that, uh, that callings and vocation as opposed to mere career is not something that's restricted to monastics. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Or priests or sisters or brothers. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone has a vocation. I mean, the most fundamental vocation is to become the person you know, whom God created. Uh, and it's it's both the person you already are and the person that God calls you to be. Um, and I think we find that out through our desires, you know, what, what moves us, what touches us, uh, you know, what are we drawn to? And part of that's career, you know, but only part of it. I mean, it's really who you're called to be, and that's why that question really spoke to me. A vocation is your deepest identity, and as well... You know, being called to married life or being a lawyer or a yeah, being a parent, or, I think, is a vocation. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. much harder vocation than being a priest, frankly. <laughs> you know, we don't get up at uh, three in the morning for, for feeding. Well, you don't get you don't get any of that training. <laughs> you just plunge into <laughs> no, it. No, we do not. <laughs> I mean, I love the use of the word 
desire, because again, I think if we do separate, if we do think about, you know, vocation or calling in kind of narrow spiritual terms, which sounds very serious, um, mm-hmm. then we probably wouldn't use that language of desire that it that it has to do with your desires, and in fact, being in touch with them is one kind of compass, but in fact, there is a very long and deep philosophical and theological tradition of thinking about desire and calling. Yeah. And, you know, I'm a Jesuit and uh, our founder, St. Ignatius, in his classic text, The Spiritual Exercises, talked about praying for what you desire uh, and also praying to understand your desires. Mm. Uh, Because I believe that your deepest desires, the things that you're drawn to, the, the, the person you're called to be, are really God's desires for you. I mean, how else would God call us to something? You know, you think of a married couple, that's the easiest example. You know, they're drawn to each other. It's the same in different jobs. It's the same in religious vocations, but it's also the same in the person you desire to be. I think we all have a an image of the person we want to become, you know, more loving, more open, more free. Mm-hmm. That's a call. It's it's helping people understand that and recognizing it that it, it in a way that to, to tell them it's not selfish, you know, desire ultimately is not selfish. Yeah, it's freeing and it opens the possibility that this, that this you know, not necessarily is easy, but is a, you know, is a process that has joy in it <laughs> and delight yeah. and, um, and... And heartache sometimes yeah, as, as we try to, as we, as we let go of the things that we're not called to be and the parts mm-hmm. of our lives that, you know, are keeping us back. I mean, this, this is God calling you, you know, it's just, this is a process and it's, it's ultimately liberating, which is a great message for people. Father James Martin is editor-at-large of the Jesuit magazine, America. His books include The Jesuit Guide to Almost Everything, A Spirituality for Real Life, and most recently, Building a Bridge. What you've just heard are nine wise and graceful lives, a taste of season two of the Becoming Wise podcast that we'll be releasing over the next 16 weeks. Reset your day, replenish your sense of yourself and the world. You can get them all by subscribing to Becoming Wise in all the usual places, iTunes, Spotify, you know the story. On Being is Chris Hegel, Lily Percy, Mariah Helgeson, Maya Tarrell, Marie Sambilay, Aaron Farrell, Lauren Dordal, Tony Liu, Bethany Iverson, Aaron Colasacco, Kristen Lynn, Prophet Adewu, Casper Kyle, Angie Thurston, Sue Phillips, Eddie Gonzalez, Lillian Rowe, Lucas Johnson, Damon Lee, Suzette Burley, Katie Gordon, Zach Rose, and Siri Grassley. The On Being Project is located on Dakota land. Our lovely theme music is provided and composed by Zoe Keating. And the last voice that you hear singing at the end of our show is Cameron Kinghorn. On Being was created at American Public Media. Our funding partners include the Fetzer Institute, helping to build the spiritual foundation for a loving world. Find them at Fetzer.org. 
Kalliopeia Foundation, working to create a future where universal spiritual values form the foundation of how we care for our common home. Humanity United, advancing human dignity at home and around the world. Find out more at humanityunited.org, part of the Omidyar Group. The Henry Luce Foundation, in support of public theology reimagined. The Osprey Foundation, a catalyst for empowered, healthy, and fulfilled lives. And the Lilly Endowment, an Indianapolis-based private family foundation dedicated to its founders' interests in religion, community development, and education. On Being is produced by On Being Studios in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Minnesota.